Hi, everybody. Welcome Hello. back to Date Night at the Coffee Shop. We're back. We are back. Um, so those of you that don't know, I'm Bart. I'm Sam. Um, and we're glad you decided to join us on our date night. Um, just kind of want to follow up a little bit from our previous episode. Uh, sorry about that. It was a little outdated. We had given some information about us going to be taking a hiatus. but Here's the thing. Um, we do what we want. I mean, yeah, we do that. <laughs> but we... Um, Things got a little crazy in our world. We recently just bought a house and moved. So um, it's been a hectic month Month. plus some. I mean, it's it's been a hectic 2020. Yeah, I mean, 2020 has been a little crazy anyways. But um, the last couple of months for us have have been kind of of crazy. Yeah. Um, And the episode that just came out, the one about the Olympics, that one was actually supposed to come out before, before we took our hiatus, but we kind of forgot to release it. So, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> um, you could definitely tell, though, from my research that I needed a break. So, this break was very, very helpful. Yes, yes. So, now <laughs> we're back and better than ever. Um, at least I think so. Yeah. So, we hope that you guys are excited to get back into our coffee adventures um, oh, so that's a good name. We should have done that as a name. Coffee Adventures? Yes. That's not that's not too bad, actually. Yeah. yeah. Coffee Adventures with Bart and Sam. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways, yeah. So, uh, with that in mind, we want to go ahead and talk about our coffee today. Uh, today, we're trying a coffee company called Black and Bold. Um, it's actually spelled B-L-K and Bold. Um it's a black-owned company. Uh, we really wanted to start focusing on some um, some black-owned companies to highlight with all the the craziness going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one is this this company is pretty cool. They um, uh, it says the the back sh- uh, says that Black and Bold was born to assist disadvantaged domestic youth with defying their odds in pursuit of living their best lives in turn creating a better future for all of us. Therefore, 5% of all profits are contributed to initiatives across the U.S. that further this imperative. Um, And looking through some more information on their website, um, it looks like they're aligned to sustaining youth programming, enhancing workforce development, and eradicating youth homelessness. So That's awesome. uh, Great stuff they're doing over at Black & Bold. We're really excited to try their coffee. Uh, The one we have today... Uh, we've got a single origin coffee uh, from La Guadalupe, Honduras. It doesn't really have a name. Um, that is the name. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the name. It's just where it's from. Um, it's a light roast. This is, I think, our first light roast on the show. I, th- I think we've done one or two, not many. Usually, yeah. we do dark roast. That's kind of our thing. Yeah. Well, it's mostly kind of my thing. <laughs> but. Uh, this one that it says it's got tasting notes of caramel, honey, and a creamy body. I am so here about. I'm it sounds about delicious. Mm-hmm. It smells fantastic. Mm-hmm. That does smell, and it's definitely still green. You know what I mean? Because it's a light roast. Yeah, light that. roast is still well, not know. really still green, but it smells a little bit more earth, like yeah. more like grass. Right, though. it'll be a lot more grassy. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and take our first sip. All right, I'm ready. Mm. That is good, yeah. That's super bright, and I think we've used that yes, term a lot. Bright on the show. is a very good term, but I really do like it. It's nice. 
It's a, it's a good morning coffee. Yeah, it is a good morning coffee. Light roasts are pretty good like that. Um, it definitely, like, wakes you up. It, like, um, hits, like, all the taste buds, you know, in all the right ways. Right. Mm. It is. It's got... It's, it's pretty smooth. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can definitely tell it has high acidity, though, like light roasts generally do. You know what I mean? Like, because they're a little bit more fresh if that makes sense yeah it's 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 not too bad but though. It's, it's not it's not as not harsh bitter. as a lot of the um a lot of light roasts i've had yeah for sure um but yeah it's good it's smooth mm-hmm. um it, it does have some some kind of sweet almost caramel type tones there um so what what, what are you thinking oh yeah we do that we rate it don't we we do we rate it um i would probably give it a seven a seven? Yeah, I would definitely I'm drink honest. it again. Yeah, I would yeah. definitely drink this again. I, yeah, I would definitely get some more of this. Um, I would probably... Mm, one more sip. I would say... Yeah, I, seven. Seven is a pretty... pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a pretty good rating for it. Yeah, um, I'd buy it again. I'd drink it again. Like, yeah. I would... I'd serve this to people. Like, I probably want to try one of their dark roasts. And they had a dark roast, but the tasting notes didn't sound like it was as interesting as this one. Right. Um, right. And I don't think it was a single origin. It was a blend. I yeah. think was a lot of the problem. Yeah. So, but we wanted to make sure and try the single origin from uh, Honduras. Black um, and bold. But yeah, black and bold, spelled B-L-K and bold. Uh, go check them out. You can get them at Target. Or- yeah, we found this at Target. You can find them online at... Um, I believe it's just blackandbold.com. They also, I saw on their Instagram that they are doing a subscription service now. Oh, okay. So that's pretty that's cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. So if you like it, sign up for a subscription. Um, all right. So let's move into our topic for are today. Are we ready? Are we ready? We are ready. I'm ready. Um, yeah. So today we've got a pretty exciting topic to talk about. One that I don't really know a whole lot about. I don't think you knew a whole lot about before no, you started researching either. I fell down the rabbit hole. Yeah. That's for sure. It took me a long time. It took all the break for me to like get all this together. Mm-hmm. So So today we're going to be talking about D.B. Cooper. Um, super excited to, to talk about this. Like I said, I don't really know a whole lot, but I know it's a pretty controversial and interesting topic. Yeah. So, and also I want to point out, we have our, this is our very first fan pick. Thank you very much, Andrew, for this pick. Um, if you, we hope that we've done it justice. Let us know. Send us an email or a DM. Yeah, and who knows? We may we may follow up with DB Cooper anyways because yeah. there's, there's there's a, a lot. lot there. There's a lot. I have I currently have twelve pages of evidence. Anyways, right. We'll we'll get to it for oh, sure. Wow. Okay. So let's let's go ahead and, and get into it. Tell me about DB Cooper. Okay. What's going on there? So this case is the only unsolved hijacking case in the history of commercial aviation. On the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, Thanksgiving Eve, a white 6'1 man with black hair and brown eyes, approximately 170 to 175 pounds, in his mid-40s, boarded Northwest Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle. So that's like the the, the plainest looking guy. Yep. Period. Like average height, average hair, average weight. At, just yep. white guy, mid forties, like the plainest guy you could think of. Yep. So that's already he's got that working for him. Yep. I mean, he already looks like half the country at this <laughs> yep. point, especially in the seventies. Yep, for sure. 
So the man settled into his seat at the rear of the plane, lit a cigarette, and ordered a bourbon and soda. He then handed- I want to pause you right there. Um, so this guy, he's in a plane, and this is what was... It kind of <laughs> makes the 70s a magical time. <laughs> yeah. Because he's on a plane, and he just lit a cigarette. No problem. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Nobody had any any problems at all. No, not a care in the world. Nope. Just a man with his cigarette and his bourbon. First of all, this sounds like a great time. Um, but man, what a magical time to be alive in the seventies. You couldn't get away with any of that today. Nope. So he ordered a bourbon and soda, and then he handed a note to Florence Schaffner, a twenty-three-year-old flight attendant. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed reclaimed it. But according to Schaefner, it told her that he had a bomb in his briefcase to sit beside, and to like told her to sit beside him. So told the, the flight, flight attendant, attendant to, to sit, sit beside him. him. Yep. Okay. So that's kind of what happened. Let's get in more in depth. All okay. Right. So flight attendant Schaefner did as instructed. Cooper then told her the rest of his demands. Cooper was very precise about his demands for money. He wanted two hundred thousand in twenty dollar bills, which would weigh around twenty one pounds. If smaller bills were used, it would add extra weight and could be dangerous for his skydive. Larger mm-hmm. bills would weigh less, but they would be more difficult to pass. He even specified that he wanted bills with serial numbers that were random, not sequential. Good plan. I know. He knows I mean, what he's talking about. Really, uh, yeah, he knew what he was doing. Yep. He had it planned out. Yep. The FBI agents gave him bills with random serial numbers, but made sure that all of them began with a code letter L. He also wanted four parachutes with a specific type of pull cord. He wanted these items to be delivered on landing at the Seattle airport after three and a half hours in the air for a flight that normally lasted 30 minutes. The plane lands. Having received his money and parachutes, Cooper dismissed the passengers and flight attendant Schaefner. He did not release the other flight attendant, Tia Mucklow, or the three men in the cockpit. An FAA official contacted the captain and asked Cooper for permission to come aboard the jet. The official apparently wanted to warn him of the dangers and consequences of air piracy. Cooper denied his request, and then Cooper had Mucklow read over the instruction card for operation of the aft stairs. When he questioned her about them, she said she didn't think they could be lowered during the flight. He said she was wrong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So... So at this point, so he's made these demands. I'm assuming they made a a call from the plane or something. Yeah. And so so they delivered this when they when they landed. So they they landed landed and they and then that's when the FBI gave him the 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 bills. Mm -hmm. So he he took off from um, Oregon and um from yeah from Portland from Portland Seattle Portland to Seattle. So. He took off in Portland. The flight usually lasted 30 minutes. It took three and a half hours of, like, taxiing because he was like, nope, we're not going to land until the FBI has all my stuff. Right. And then when they landed in um, Seattle, they he, they gave him all of his stuff. He dismissed everybody except the flight attendants, the one flight attendant and the three pilots. Right. So then just him and bare staff, mm-hmm. minimum staff on the plane are just kind of chilling on the, the runway mm-hmm. in, at the airport. In the plane. Yep. Just kind of... Just hanging out while everybody else is outside, like, waiting for him to come out or something. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, so after a debate on the routes to take, Cooper and the pilot decided on the best route to his next requested destination, Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Per his instructions, the plane flew under 10,000 feet at a speed lower than 200 knots. Right. Cooper also directed the captain to depressurize the cabin. 
He knew that a person could breathe normally at 10,000 feet and that if the cabin had equalized pressure inside and out, there wouldn't be a violent gust of wind when the aft stairs were lowered. Mm, after, interesting. Uh-huh. After all the flight details were figured out, the plane took off at 7.46 p.m. After takeoff, Cooper ordered the flight attendant and the rest of the crew to stay in the cockpit. There was no peephole in the cockpit door or remote cameras installed at the time, so the crew had no idea what Cooper was doing. At 8 p.m., that's 14 minutes later, a red light gave a warning that a door was open. Scott asked Cooper over the intercom if there was anything they could do for him. He replied with an angry, no. That was the last word anyone heard from Dan Cooper. Hmm. Charges for air piracy were filed in 1976, six years later. And here are some theories, right? So some theories are that the most widely accepted theory is that Poor Dan died. He did not survive the jump. So you say Dan. So what was his? Did we go over his full name? I don't Dan remember. Cooper. That's Dan. What, that's what he signed. That's what he signed the manifest as. Dan Cooper. Okay. Well, so where do we get the DB from? Don't don't know. Oh. Okay. I'm that's, not sure. That's odd. That's not something I was uh, doing in my research. I was looking at this stuff. Oh. Okay. But yeah, I think that his the flight manifest was Dan Cooper. So. The, so the most widely accepted theory is that Dan didn't survive the jump as he jumped over dense Washington State Forest in the middle of, the th- of a thunderstorm. Um, in 1980, an eight-year-old boy found 200, no, yeah, $290 $20 bills in the Columbia River. The serial numbers confirmed the bills were part of the ransom money. None of the other 9,710 bills have ever surfaced. Mm-hmm. So he, I think he threw some in the river to kind of muddy the waters so to speak yep uh uh-huh the so the discovery of these bundles led new led to new searches around the area however an eruption of mount st helens on may 18th 1980 likely destroyed any remaining clues about the cooper case mm-hmm. so another theory is that cooper is actually from canada there was a belgian comic book that followed the work of royal canadian air force dan cooper um by the name of you guessed it dan cooper so basically, somebody named Dan Cooper wrote like comics about um, a Canadian Royal Air Force pilot named Dan Cooper. Right. And so um, the comics were never translated into English or imported into the U.S., but they were found in Canada. And they said that since he demanded negotiable American currency, and that he had an, no accent, that supported the like Canadian claim. So they're kind of like, oh, he's Canadian because you know of these things. Um, so hot take for me, it would explain why he directed them to go to Mexico City, city and he supposedly jumped so early. You know what I mean? If he were to go to Canada, like, he, right. he, to go the opposite way. Does that make sense? Right. So he could just go backwards. Right. Retrace, and people would think he's he's heading way... Way... Oh, the opposite way. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we don't know exactly when he jumped, but since the rear stairs opened at 8 p.m., which is only 15 minutes into the flight, it would make sense that he would jump early and... I mean, but he could have jumped at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, so another interesting fact is Cooper knew this airplane, the Boeing 727-100 inside and out. He had, it had rear stairs. The engines were placed in such a way that it made a rear jump more safe. It had a single fueling, single point fueling capability, which was a new thing at the time. And it allowed all the tanks in the plane to be filled from a single port. So whenever they stopped in Seattle and landed, they refueled. Mm-hmm. 
And so instead of having to like take extra time to go to the different tanks, it it was an, this was a new thing at the time where it could just like, oh, this one port will fuel all the fuel tanks in the right. in the plane. Um and also had the the ability to remain in slow, low altitude flight without stalling out, which is was an an, an unusual feature for a commercial jet. Which is exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So I mean he, he he not necessarily like not only did he like know what he was doing, he like planned out for this specific plane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely. So in addition to that, Cooper was familiar with important details such as the appropriate flap setting of fifteen degrees, which was unique to that aircraft. And the typical refueling time. He knew that the aft uh, um, aft stairs could be lowered during flight, a fact that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews. So this guy, he had to be like an engineer or something that like worked on these or something. Yeah, like he, he has crazy inside knowledge that nobody else should know kind of right. thing. Um, since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary to like release those stairs... Nobody needed to know. Right. Like, so even like, and it says right here, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight crews. So even the crew on the own plane didn't know that that could be, that that could happen. Right. So, um, so, um, let's see. And it's operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. Some of this knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. So not only like was it like, oh, this happens. It's like there's a button in the very back of the cabin of the plane that if you click this button, the lower stairs will lower and the cockpit can't do anything about it. Right. Which seems like a design flaw to me, but whatever. I'm not. Anyways. So the FBI closed the case in 2016 to devote their resources to more pressing matters. So that's the hijacking, and it remains unsolved. Okay. So before we we venture on, I just want to talk a little bit about these, about the time frame. So everything happened, what's 1971, mm-hmm. um, and yet no charges were filed until 1976. Mm-hmm. So five years later is when they actually charge brought up charges for air piracy yeah which sounds awesome yeah by the way yeah i just picture like air pirate yeah that would be the most badass how cool is that (laughs) Um, but why the delay you know five years is a long time to wait on charges i think it has to do with laws yeah i think it's like a you can't make laws about things that have already happened and they kind i think they kind of did that i think they kind of were like Oh, yeah, this is a thing that, this is not cool. We should probably make this against the law kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And I think because, like, it wasn't one of those things that was, I mean, it you know, it happened from time to time. Like, air piracy was kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I think they were kind of like, well, they were all kind of stumped. You know, they were like, well, what do we do? Right. <laughs> you know? And I, I wonder if they were waiting for, like, evidence. More Possibly, like, you know what I mean? I, I feel like there's got to be something else going on. Like, there was a reason. Mm. I feel like there's got to be some sort of nefarious reason as to why charges weren't brought up before. Yeah, it's kind of, it's weird, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's strange. And it just, it, it also blows my mind that something like that could go unsolved for so long. Mm-hmm. Yep, and like, it's, like I said, it's closed, it was closed in 2016. Yeah. 
and there was just a few years ago. Yep. And like, we don't know. Yeah, so this went on for what, forty five years. Long time. Yeah. And he's probably dead by now for sure. Yeah. Well and here's the like we'll get to like there's it's it's insane. It's absolutely nuts. But yeah, I don't understand how it's it's just amazing to me that he knew so much about this specific plane. Right. And like it was the perfect plane. Like the the perfect plane and it was the perfect flight too. It's just a 30 minute flight. Yeah. Well, see the thing about it is it, it seems like this plane was rel- was new at the time. It was mm-hmm. a, a new design. Cuz it had a couple of new features. It seems like he knew this design and then devised a plan around the design of the plane. Yeah, it does seem I like that. I think that's what happened. That that does seem like yeah. Hmm. And I wonder too, like, cause and I just like this flight, cause it's from Seattle. No, it's from Portland to Seattle, which is a thirty-minute flight. Right. That's not that far, but he knew that like he would have time to like, cause the the fuel. You know what I mean? He would have enough time for them to like circle and like not land. Until yeah, they got I mean, from that far, I don't like, think you're really worried about fuel at all. Well, no, but like, um, it's like, oh, it's I don't know. It just seems like I don't. Honestly, I don't think that the fact that it was a flight from Portland to Seattle had really much significance at all. I think it was all about getting that plane. That plane? That specific plane. Hmm. Um, and so that's, on that flight, that's where that plane was flying. So he got on that flight because that's the plane that they were using. Okay. That's what I think. That makes sense. It does. And then that way, however, I mean, he knew he could get him to solve you know, yeah. until they could get whatever it was that he needed. Right. That's, that's, that is an interesting take. Yeah. So, so, uh, so moving on. I have a plot twist. Right. Okay. So tell me about this twist. Okay. So like I said at the beginning, I spent a crazy amount of time looking over all the stuff. I, so let's, uh, say this. Okay. James, nope. Thomas J. Colbert is a consultant, writer, and producer. He spent his early days as a story researcher for a local news channel in L.A. And then um, with a show called Hard Copy. After 12 years in the business, he found a true, he founded like a true story tip service. Um, and then he used his national network of contacts to collect high-profile stories from local media and then sell them to television and like motion picture production companies. So basically, he's a true crime producer. Before right. true crime was really a thing. Right, exactly. Okay, so there's also a book that this man has written called The Last Master Outlaw. Um, there is a website and all that kind of stuff, and there, um, it's on Amazon. You can you can get it. Um, okay. So before we really go on, I don't I don't know if you have a name that you're going to drop mm-hmm. that's supposed to be the identity for DB Cooper. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, I just got to say I think I have a theory about what db is what is so it? i think it's got to stand for daniel benjamin cooper so just why? throwing that out there why i don't i don't know daniel it's, benjamin cooper it's it's you know just just my own opinion like it yeah i like that old daniel benjamin daniel benjamin hijacked the plane can we name our kids daniel benjamin absolutely not okay all right because because of this because he hijacked a plane oh yeah okay got it got it kind of a you know bad bad Although, judgment air pirate i know right pretty awesome i don't know we'll table this discussion okay we'll put a pin in that 
Okay, so Colbert built a volunteer cold case team composed of retired FBI agents in around 2011 to get to the truth of the Cooper case. All right. Oh, so... Um, so he did this in 2011. Mm-hmm. So actually this was a pretty recent kind of mm-hmm. thing that Mr. Colbert was doing. Yep. So actually it wasn't before true crime was a thing. It was actually probably around... You know, well, he did like on. no. He did this like this before. He did the producing and stuff before True Crime, and then in 2011 is when he got the cold case team together. Like all oh, of that's like his okay. background. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in 2000, here's here's where things get really interesting. In 2016, July 10th and 11th to be exact, the History Channel did an in-depth two-part investigative series on the Cooper case and utilized a lot of Colbert. Colbert's team's information. Mm-hmm. Okay. On July 12th. The, the next day. The next day, the FBI came out with a public statement that said that they had officially closed the D.B. Cooper case on July 8th. Right. So they came out. The day after this documentary came out, they said, Hey, oh, hold by on. The way, we actually closed this case four days ago. Yeah. Why didn't you make an announcement then? Yeah. Why not just come out and say we're closing the DB? It was a weekend. Case. We're sorry. We we it was a weekend. Yeah. Seems fishy to me. Yep. Okay. In September of 2016, Colbert and his team sued the FBI over a freedom of, over an ignored Freedom of Information Act request, asking for the documents pertaining to the Cooper case. So. Basically, Colbert requested, and since he's a member of the media, like it's kind of like one of those things where it's kind of like he doesn't have to pay a fee for them. If you're a member of the media, you don't have to pay a fee for these documents. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, if you're just a citizen, you have to pay like whatever standard fee for it. And so, like, it went ignored. Like, he didn't get any kind of confirmation back. And so they're like, okay, cool. And like, cause so he, he contacted his lawyer, and his lawyer was like, hey, FBI, we're we're asking you for this stuff, and you ignored this, like. Because it has to be in writing. The request has to, and the request was in writing, and the response has to be in writing. And the FBI never responded. So a side note, the History Channel special, um, in true TV fashion, they edited out and disregarded key pieces of evidence that made it appear as if it were truly unsolved. But Colbert says that they know who it is. Uh That the team knows exactly who it is. The History Channel also falsely insinuated that the FBI had already reviewed the cold case team's evidence when in fact the fbi hadn't seen it even though the team offered it to them multiple times right so the team had compiled this evidence in from 2011 to whenever 2016 or so and they were like hey fbi we got this stuff for you and the fbi's like no fam no thanks we're good and right. like, just didn't okay they didn't really care about it until they actually saw the special yeah and then they were like nope it's closed never mind <laughs> And so the reason why Colbert is asking for the information from the FBI and suing them over like the case files is essentially they want to see why it was closed whenever it's obvious that this one person did it. Mm-hmm. So I included a link on the Google Doc. Um, there are 95 separate pieces of evidence and leads that point to this one person. 95. Wow. Um, the History Channel and documentary covers most of them, but there are several that they omit. Um, so, you ready for the name drop? Yeah, let's hear it. <clears throat> so, we know we know who Daniel Benjamin is. Yep. Daniel Benjamin Cooper is actually Robert 
Wesley Rackstraw Sr. Ah. Bob Rackstraw. Who's that? (laughs) According to Wikipedia, he is a former Army pilot and ex-convict who earned multiple awards for gallant chopper rescues during the Vietnam War. Mm. Between flights and, like, his training and all that kind of stuff, he received his commander's wrath for conduct unbecoming an officer during an unauthorized ground mission with the CIA and Green Berets for prohibited parachute jumps. Mm. And for lying about attending, like he lied about his background and qualifications, essentially. Right. So, so he he was military. He was a paratrooper. He worked with the CIA. He was reprimanded for uh, unauthorized, uh, prohibited parachute jumps. Mm-hmm. This has got to be the guy. <laughs> I mean, this has totally got to be Mr. Benjamin. Right. Okay, so those fabrications ended Rackstraw's seven-year career in the Army, and his sister said that he came home to California both disillusioned and angry. Mm-hmm. So, so let me just take a break and say, like, the evidence is long and confusing. It includes, like, lies and, like, aliases and cons. So basically, Colbert's team and the evidence, they use some of Rackstraw's questionable choices and his poor character traits and, like... Like, writing bad checks and being a deadbeat dad and just being a general liar. Like, along with um, his military background, that kind of basically fits uh, to point to him as just a general grifter and con man and the one and only Right, Daniel so they Benjamin. didn't really have anything solid, like, tying him to... I'm going to read some evidence. Okay, all right. I'm going to read some evidence. Okay, so I won't read all of it, but I've highlighted some. And it said, this is actually from the um, the legal documents that were sent to the FBI as part of like the like hey this is what we're so doing this is part of the 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 complaint yeah this is part of the complaint to the FBI like hey here are we want your case files because here's what we have and right. like you didn't give us this so we're just going to give you all of what we have okay so it says right here I'll just quote it reveals a man who has fabricated his history lied about his background received military training that would allow a parachute jump from a commercial airliner at 10,000 feet committed various crimes to include fraud and insinuated, if not admitted, to family members and close friends that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. The relevant pieces of never-before-seen evidence are highlighted in bold. And I can send... who If you DM me, I'll send you guys a link to this so, stuff. So, hold up. So, we've got documentation that he also admitted to some of his friends and family that he yes. was Daniel Benjamin? Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll just read some of them. And like I said, the, the History Channel documentary goes over quite a few of these. But they're the ones that are on in bold in this document right here were the ones that the History Channel were like, oops, we forgot, and like just omitted them. Hmm. Okay. So in January of 1967, Rackstraw, then a U.S. Army Reserve Corporal, moved to Fort Benning, Georgia for four weeks for infantry jump school training. When was it? Say that date again. In 67. 67. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just a few years prior. Right. In February of 67... He began an eight-week course of demolition training, which he said he had a bomb. So, um, in or around the same period of time, Rackstraw obtained a second social security number. How do you just get a second one? I don't know. I feel I'd like, like an extra one. I want another one. Can I just get a second one? I just, I feel like, come on. Yeah, like they, they say, like, he just obtained a second mm-hmm. one. Like, that's just something that people do. Yep. Um, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, is that not a crime? Right. How does that happen? Well, 
Oh, I was going to I was going to say that I have two of something that I shouldn't have two of, but I'm not going to say that on air cuz then they're going to come after me. But um Yeah, but that's not the same thing. That's just like a copy. That's true. But they have like, two different numbers. It might has two different numbers on it. Oh, well, that is weird. That is very weird. So we're, we'll edit this out. But okay, so um in June, let's see. Let me see. In February, blah blah. blah. Okay, in February of 1971, February Subsequent to his return to the United States, now Lieutenant Rackstraw is detained at Fort Rucker, Alabama for domestic assault after his first wife filed for divorce. So it's kind of like, hmm, you kind of, you kind of a not great person there. This is like, it's kind of like, let's look at this. He's got questionable character. Yeah, but still, I'm only hearing things that's just like, this is the kind of guy he was. Yeah, He's the kind of guy that would do this. Yeah, circum- circumstantial at best. Okay. In or around the same period of time, Rackstall traveled northwest, as he would t- le- later tell his family in California, to open a plane service for realtors for the purpose of seeking aerial pictures. Mm-hmm. So this next part is super long, and I'm not going to get into it, but basically, during 1971 and 1972, an individual claiming to be Norman De Winter, a Swiss baron, participated in a con in Oregon. And it goes, like, there's, like, Evidence under evidence under evidence. So basically, like, this person, this grifter, Norman De Winter, is Rackstraw. That's who it is. Rackstraw is there claiming to be a Swiss baron, and he's got all this stuff about, like... Do we know that's him for sure? Yes. So, like, Rackstraw told his family in California that he was flying a a plane for a realtor up north. And also, Norman De Winter was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like... Everything that Rackstraw was doing, Norman De Winter was doing. Right. Just going, he was just going by a different name, essentially, okay. and different title. So, um, blah, 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 blah. And he was like flying over the area where the jump took place. Right. So, case in the jump. Right, exactly. As this person, Norman De Winter. And so, like, this is like an alias that he has, and like he's done all of this stuff, and like he lies about how like he's this football player, and like, it's this huge complex thing. It's craziness, absolute craziness. So, and then like Norman De Winter goes away for a while, and then he comes back to Oregon. Right. So it's kind of like whenever Rackshaw needed to go back to his family in California, he would like Norman De Winter would disappear from Oregon. Does right. that make sense? So yeah. like the timelines kind of like add up. So on July twenty third. 1971, four months before the hijacking, the National Guard Armory in Santa Cruz, California, where Rackstraw began his military career, was hit by a highly sophisticated after-hours burglary. The next day, um, Armory officials discovered that all M1 rifles, 45 caliber pistols, and machine guns were missing. All. Huh. So he took all, all. of their guns. Well, at least all of those. Yeah. Particular guns. How many did you have that this one person could take all of them? It had to not be that many. Yeah. Right? Either that or there were more people involved. As well as a grenade launcher. Whoa. Right? Okay. Based on interviews conducted by the cold case team, it was learned that for nearly 10 years, Rackstraw's family members and co-workers were told by the FBI they suspected Rackstraw had committed the burglary as his first stick-it-to-the-man caper, but was never charged. So basically his family was like, yeah, the FBI came around asking, like, we think he did it, but nothing was ever done about it. Right. They didn't have any evidence. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, a few months later, the hijacking happened, and um, 
In in the week after the hijacking, officials confiscated four D.B. Cooper letters that had been mailed to papers in the Northwest. The first and last of those four letters were sent from California mailboxes 35 miles and 50 miles from where Rackstraw remotely lived for 18 months. So, it says, Former FBI agent Jack Tremarco deemed the postal marking discovery an 8 out of 10 evidentiary-wise. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was mailed from not far from his house. Right. Um, and it says, in 1973, Rackstraw unlocked an airplane hangar in Palo Alto, California, and revealed a Cessna airplane to his future second wife. Rackstraw described the plane as his own, although FAA records demonstrate Rackstraw never registered any aircraft. Mm-hmm. So, um... Unless it was registered under a different name. Exactly. Or he stole it. Exactly. Under Daniel Benjamin... Yeah, did they look for registrations under a Daniel Benjamin? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, let's see. Da, da, da. So in Portland, Oregon in 1974, uh, Briggs introduced his new friend, Rackstraw, to Jim Schnell. Rackstraw arrives at the meeting with a duffel bag of cash. Mm-hmm. Shell never asked any questions about the duffel bag. This was the first of 16 known trips Rackstraw made to the Northwest and one of four to meet with Briggs. Wait, so, so what was the date again? Um, 1974. Three years after. Okay, so Rackstraw is still kicking it after, like, we we know he's still hanging out after the whole thing mm-hmm. happened. And now he's just got this duffel, duffel bag, bag full of cash. Of cash. Mm-hmm. I wonder mm-hmm. if any of them have uh, serial numbers that, numbers that start with L. I would find that probably highly likely. (laughs) Um, So in May of 1974, he volunteers as a part-time chopper pilot for uh, Calveras County, California. Uh, Months later, his ID badge is taken away after abusing it in bars in Stockton. He later impersonates a deputy sheriff during a drunk driving stop. Um, Between 1974 and 1976, Rackstraw made out-of-state road trips for California Floor Company. During those trips, he would rent planes at various airports and take a regular workmate out for local flights. That workmate stated that Rackstraw would put down wrong names on the rental applications when he directly asked Rackstraw if he was D.B. Cooper. Rackstraw responded with a (laughs) half-smile. So there's another case where he's driving with his co-workers. They went, like, to some something and he's driving with the co-workers and he gets pulled over and he gives the officer a co-worker's name just gives the officer a different name right and this is back in the when in the 70s when you could do that you'd be like oh i'm you know joe blow and they're like oh okay cool you know yeah they just kind of make a note of it and go mm-hmm. on their way yeah have a way to check it and then whenever like the officer lets him go and all that kind of stuff his co-workers well i mean they had licenses well yeah but like it wasn't like their systems weren't it, it wasn't as like it is now where it's like, oh, I'm just going to run it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, that clearly meant that he would have had to have had a license, right? I don't know. I, it doesn't, the, the art, the thing, the or situation doesn't say. during the 70s, say. did they just believe? <laughs> yeah, they probably just were like, okay, cool. But his coworkers were like, why would you do that? He's like, what were they going to do about it anyways? You know, like what, what would they do? Like, oh, my bad. It was just a joke. It's probably, you were probably right. Probably in the 70s, they were like, oh. Yeah. Oh, you. you know, right. What are you doing? So, 22 cases of dynamite, enough to level a local uh, county center six times over, that were stored in a mountain quarry bunker in Rackstraw's former hometown of Santa Cruz were found to be missing. 
Mm-hmm. An ATF official later stated the thief or thieves knew what they were doing. Press articles from 1978 indicate that family members and co-workers who were interviewed by the FBI claimed Rackstraw was a prime suspect in the theft but was never charged. Again. Again. Another, like, hmm, he probably did this. Mm-hmm. So, um, let me see. What else? Any other good evidence? Uh, he, like, wrote bad checks. Um, all this stuff. Just a general not not cool dude yeah so like there are there are i think like 12 pages here um in 2007 the fbi's case agent assigned to the db cooper investigation stated that dan cooper airline ticket was signed by the hijacker colbert hired linton a muhammad a former president of the american society of questioned document examiners to compare the ticket signature to the handwriting of the one of four db cooper letters so they took the airline ticket that D.B. Cooper signed and compared it to the letters Mm -hmm. that were sent afterwards. The analysis found similarities and indication that they were written by one person, which handwriting analysis these days is kind of like pseudoscience and it's not nearly as... Especially at this time. Well, like at this time, it's more like, oh, this might be, this might be cool. But now we've discovered in today's time that it may not be quite as accurate. Right. No, that's what I'm saying though. Like at this point, it's really not that accurate. People believe in it. Yeah. But it's not... Yeah. It's not super like, oh, he totally did it. But, um, let's see. So, Colbert's team based... So, in a, tele- in a telephone conversation on February 19th, 2013, Rackstraw was informed that recent forensic tests overseen by the FBI had concluded that the D.B. Cooper ransom money could not have washed down the Columbia River and instead appeared to have um, been planted. Rackstraw stated, yeah... I heard that too, to get them off track. Mm-hmm. So you were right. And he's just kind of like, yeah. So, again, there's way yeah. more evidence. I'm on N, evidence number NNNN. So, like, what's 26 times 4 or whatever? Like, it, that's why I asked you what that is. Right. Earlier, I asked you. Cause, a, a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> so, all these pages of evidence are kind of like, hey, he could be the guy. And I think, so that's kind of, like I said. Right. So. That's what we got. This kind of leads me to my ultimate question. If we know, or at least the FBI has all of this evidence at this point. It's circumstantial. That that it, it, it is circumstantial, but it's probably this guy. Yep. We really need to hone in on this guy and figure it out. Why would they then just close the case? Why wouldn't they keep investigating this guy if there's at least some compelling uh, evidence? People have been convicted for less. True. Very true. Many people have been convicted for much less. Right. Yeah. I don't know. And I think that's why Colbert and his team are asking for the case file. Because Mm -hmm. they're like, what happened? Right. Now, I wonder... So Colbert said... And the other people on the team said that the FBI manipulated the History Channel special. That they were the ones who made the History Channel omit evidence mm-hmm. to avoid embarrassment. Right. Like, oh crap. Like this, this team of like armchair detectives, although they are retired FBI agents and like law enforcement, and law enforcement officials, this, oh crap, they figured it out and we couldn't. Mm-hmm. Kind of so I'm thinking... He, so he, you know, he was in the military. He was in Vietnam. 
He, we clearly have documentation that he had worked with CIA paramilitary operations before. I wonder if he was still working with the CIA. And they did it and, just to see if it was see, capable? Well, I don't know what their motives were. Um, who knows why? But I wonder if that might be the reason that they just closed the case is because he was involved with the CIA. Hmm. And the CIA kind of shut that down. That's a good thing. And I might, well, like that would lead me, of course, to be like, well, why would the CIA want him to hijack this plane? Who knows? Maybe he had some kind of mission that he had to do. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want it getting out that he did it and he worked with them before. Oh, maybe he was kind of, oh, maybe they're like, oh, no, no. Like yeah, a former they, CIA they, person they cannot want be. They to look bad on the intelligence agency or something like mm, that. Who yeah. knows? But yeah. Well, then why wouldn't they just, like, kill him? Maybe they did. They're still alive? Well, he died not that long ago. Oh. Yeah. Maybe because they knew it would be too obvious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because just going around, like, icing people is, like, not... Like, you can't just do that. I mean, it happens, I know. But, like, you... That, it gets... People are kind of like, wait a minute. Right. People get suspicious. Yeah. So. So, I will say this. I did read an article from the Washington Post that stated that Colbert asked Rackstraw before all of this started to confess and to cash in big. And that Rackstraw had talked it over with his attorney as in, and his attorney asked for all of the evidence that they had on him. So, like, basically, before, before Colbert did this whole report, before he was like, whatever, did this thing, he was like, come on. Come in with, come on. Like, let's do this. Yeah. Confess. I'll give you some money. Like, because I have a book. I'm writing. I'm going to write a book on it. It'll be a TV show like or a movie. And I'll give you money if you just confess. Right. But you'll have to turn yourself in. And so his, his attorney was like, hmm, no. And so, like, the Washington Post article kind of paint, it paints a very different picture of Colbert and Rackstraw's relationship. Mm-hmm. And it basically says that Colbert and his team, like, really hounded hounded him and, like, kind of, like, attacked him and were, like, they they looked for evidence that was kind of, like, he's the person no matter what. Right. You know? So, I don't know. Interesting stuff. But that's the only article that says that. Everything else says that Rackstraw did it. Right. Everything else says it. Right. Very interesting. So, any anything else on... Nope. That's what I got. All right. So, that's... I'm probably That's gonna get kinda, the book though. I kind of want to read the book. There's a book for this. <laughs> yeah, the yes. the Last Master Outlaw. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll need to uh, get get a copy of that. Um, so that's our uh, our topic on DB Cooper, aka Daniel Benjamin, aka, AKA Bob Rackstraw. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Um, definitely some cool stuff there. Some interesting stuff. Yeah, this one was fun. Um, that was fun. Uh, I'm excited to continue on our podcasting journey. I'm glad to be back doing this. If you have um, a topic that you would like, DM us or email us, and we will uh, we'll call you out on the show. Yeah, absolutely. You can find us at Date Night at the Coffee Shop on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can email us at datenightcoffeeshop at gmail.com. Um, Want to go ahead and, and just kind of hit our, our coffee today. Again, was uh, black and bold. Again, spelled B-L-K and bold. Um, and their single origin coffee from La Guadalupe, Honduras. It's um, so good. Super good. Go check them out. Uh, 
continue to, to follow us. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Check us out, some of our other episodes. Um, give us some, some more topics. Give us some feedback. Give us some coffees to try. Uh, we're always excited to hear some, some new things to do. Uh, but more than that, we're just super excited that you guys are continuing to, to follow us and to uh, join us on our date nights. And yes, we appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. The so, fact that we still got listens while we were on a break and we're taking a sabbatical just warms my heart. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely you guys are um, awesome. encouraging. Again, so I know I'm over here like, we do what I want. But then I'm like, aw, they listen. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you guys so much. Um, we were we're excited. You guys were joining us on our date night today. Um, we have I, so much more room in our podcast studio yeah, our, office. Yeah, our new studio office is, is much, much more desirable than our previous one. Yes. Um, so it's a lot more comfortable to get stuff done. Um, but again, thank you guys so much. Um, again, I'm Bart. I'm Sam. And we hope you guys continue to listen. Bye. Thanks. Bye.